Now we're going to turn this morning in our Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you haven't got a Bible with you, uh, there's plenty available at the back if you'd like to grab one. Uh, Samuel's not an easy book to find, so I'll give you a minute to do that, and it gives me a second to have a drink of water as well. 1 Samuel <coughs> chapter 30. There's a bit of um, history to this moment that uh, we'll talk about in just a moment. So there's some confusing elements. I'll hopefully, uh, we'll hopefully look at that as we get into the word today. Uh, but an incredible moment in David's <coughs> life. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both old and young. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Ever been there? David's two wives had been captured, Ananiam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathur the priest, the son of Elimelech, bring me the ephod. Abathur brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men came to the Besor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he'd not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Catherines, some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except the 400 men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. 
Then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and his men with him. As David and his men approached, they asked, they asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder they've recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. But David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given to us. He protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is the same of that as him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. David made this statue an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a gift from you, from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, all those who were in Aroah, Sifmoth, Epimuth, and Rakal, and all those towns of the Jemuelites and Ken Kenites. To those in Hormah, he just put this in just to make a fool of me. And bore Ashan, Atak, and Hebron, uh, and to those in all other places where he and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you saw the story this week in the papers, but it was about an advertising agency who'd been hired to promote holidays in the Philippines. And they were having a, a big push on holidays out there, and they had this campaign called Love the Philippines, and an uh, advertising company was brought in, they were looked after, they had hotels given to them in the Philippines, the best treatment that you could hope for, the best hotels, the best meals, everything, and they were tasked with making a video that would advertise the Philippines to the world as a holiday destination. And so a video was made, it was released, it was put out in cinemas, uh, on YouTube, on TVs, almost anywhere you can show a video, this video, Love the Philippines, was shown. But there was only one problem with it. They'd borrowed some footage that they themselves hadn't filmed, and as it turned out, it wasn't footage of the Philippines, it was footage of the United Arab Emirates and of Brazil instead. And so the people of, of, of the Philippines were furious that this advert that was meant to advertise uh, holidays there was actually advertising a, another part of the world. And I wonder when it comes to our faith, when it comes to following Jesus, if there are moments when it feels like this should look different to how it looks. This should feel different to how it feels. Lord, I love you. Lord, I trust you. But I didn't think that following you would lead me here. Yeah. Been there? Amen. Those the, well, then you're in the right place this morning. Those, those places where you think, what I signed up for feels so different to where I am today. For some of us, we open the scriptures, and I was taught when I was young that it doesn't really matter how much scripture you read. When we, back in those days, we called it a quiet time. Uh, I'm discovering more and more quiet isn't useful for me. I need other ways to spend time with God. But uh, that 
you know, we, we read the scriptures. I was taught, it doesn't matter if it was one chapter, two chapters, one verse, two verses. You read it until it speaks to you. And that's been my, my practice whenever I read the Bible, to, to read it until something speaks to me. And very often there'll be a, a, a revelation or a promise, and it'll leap out. Everything else is, is interesting and exciting, but there'll be something there that's in full color. And it'll be something for me to hold on to. And maybe you've had that experience. You've gone to the Word for an answer, and God has spoken to you in some way. And you've carried that, and you're still waiting to step into the place that the Bible was meant to guide you into. How many of us have, have been there? Lord God, I trust you to comfort me, but my heart is still broken. Lord God, I trust that you are my healer, and yet my body is still broken. I trust you to forgive me, but when I think about myself, I still feel shame. I still feel darkness. Lord God, I want to parent in the way that you call me to. I want to raise my children in the way of the Lord. And yet, it feels like I've done everything right and I'm not seeing what I thought your word had promised I would see. Sometimes we live, don't we, between these places of, of, of promise and the place that we find ourselves in. I wonder if this morning you were to put yourself in a cave and to gaze out of it, what, you, what the view would be today. This week, as I've been preparing for this morning, I kind of want to pick up from where we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'll explain that in just a moment. But there's a moment here where David, it says, finds strength in God. He finds strength in God. And for all of us today, I want to really look at that, what that means, and seek to minister that to our hearts and lives today. How do we find strength? strength in God. Before we do, I just want to run through, if I can give you kind of a plotted history of what has led to this point, because this probably isn't a chapter that you've spent a lot of time in. It's not a chapter that I've spent a lot of time in, so I just want to give you a quick history. I'll try and do this quickly. Can we like stay together for this? I'll, I'll probably talk quite quickly. If you can listen quickly, that would be great, but I want to go back to an early point in this man called David's life. So a point in time, and it's hard to imagine this now, given his position in history, his position in scripture, but a point in time when nobody had heard of this guy called David. Uh, he was out in the fields looking after his dad's sheep, which was always the job for the youngest in the family, the, the runt of the litter. The person who would never aspire to anything more was going to be the person looking after the sheep. Well, that was David. And yet, on his own, when nobody was looking, when nobody was calling prayer meetings or running revivals, David is seeking God. Out there in his fields, just worshipping the Lord. Remarkable in a day when the primary way that you approach God is through temple and sacrifice. David kind of opens up this other way to God, just prayer and song. We were thinking, weren't we, those of you who came to the prayer day last week about that wonderful prayer of David's, the Lord is my shepherd. And I've often wondered, did he write that when he sat out in his field looking at, look at the, all these sheep thinking, God, what I do for these is what you do for me. Who knows? And one day at his dad's house, at Jesse's home, this prophet arrives with this amazing word from God, this dangerous word from God. 
Israel had a king, a man called Saul, but God has chosen another king, and this prophet brings this word to Jesse's house, one of your sons will be king. And so Jesse thinks about that and brings in his eldest, who by all accounts was a tall, strapping, handsome guy, and in the heart of the prophet, you get this moment where he goes, oh yeah, people will follow him. He'll, he'll be a good king. I could, I could pledge my allegiance to a bloke like that. And God says, no. No, that's not the one. And Samuel's got to learn something. That we look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he says, that's not the one. Now that would be hard enough for the elders to know. Oh gosh, somebody younger than me from my family is going to reign over me in a very patriarchal, hierarchical uh, age and generation and culture. That would have been really difficult. And so the next eldest is, is brought in. Same thing. Really handsome guy, strong, strapping, commanding presence. Ah, yeah. <coughs> if it wasn't the first one, then surely it's... No, no, it's not this one. This happened seven times back and forth. Until the prophet goes to Jesse and says, have you got any other kids? And he says, well, there's the youngest, but you wouldn't want to see Davy, boys. He's out looking after the sheep. Just bring him in. So this young lad comes in, still smelling of the field. And the Lord speaks to the prophet's heart and says, that's the one. David, we're told, he was by no means perfect. But there's something about his heart that is after God. Since God is looking at the heart, God knows he's the one. And so the prophet comes to this young lad and pours the anointing oil over his head. Something that only ever happened to prophet, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. The symbolism is so powerful here. I'm sure whispering into the young boy's ear, this means one day you will be king. So David has a, a promise over his life. What do you do with that as a young person? Well, what we do know is that in a few chapters later, when there's a threat to Israel and the brothers all go off to war, when they come looking for David, he's still in his fields, still looking after his sheep. He doesn't try and meddle or interfere with God's plans. He just, just waits on it. So they come and get David and say, oh, your brothers need some food. So he goes down uh, to the battle and is enraged by this man who's described as a giant, Goliath, who's there defying God and the armies of Israel. And you'll know the story well. David runs with all this courage at Goliath, armorless and alone. And in the name of the Lord, strikes him down. And there's this huge victory against Goliath and the Philistines that day. It's not decisive. The Philistines, as we'll see, will be a, a major threat for Israel for, for many years to come yet. But this is a huge blow to them to lose their champion. Uh, and David is honored. So David is then moved into the palace. He becomes best friends with the king's son, Jonathan, and is given one of the king's wives, uh, a daughter, sorry, uh, as his wife. So you might think now that having been rejected at home, but called by God, now being moved into a place of royalty, uh, of being a kind of a son-in-law to the king and best friends with the king's son, that the fulfillment of this promise is quite near. It's, you would have thought it, wouldn't you? You would have thought, well, yes, God, I can see the, the next steps. We're taught, aren't we, in, uh, in the Christian life to kind of follow that trail of breadcrumbs that God is leading for us. Surely now, God, it, it won't be long. 
One of the things about David was he was a fierce fighter, fierce warrior. He could command armies and had brilliant military strategy. And fairly soon he rises through the ranks of the military. And there's this song that the women of the nation are singing. Yes, Saul, the current king, he's, he's slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Now, if you're the kind of person that's very secure in your position and thinks, well, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm the king, he commands an army, of course, it's gonna, the numbers aren't going to equal out, of course, it's going to be different. That's not a problem. Saul was not that way. And this deep jealousy runs through him. A jealousy that actually allows this, this torment, this spiritual torment. He's tormented by an evil spirit and it's come in through this character flaw of jealousy. And he becomes to rage against David. At one point, David is there and he's gifted um, with the anointing of, of, of a musician, of a worship musician, sorry. Uh, and he can play this worship music and as the anointing surrounds David as he plays, evil spirits flee. And so because of that, David plays for the king and the spirits flee from Saul. But one time Saul is so angered that David is getting popular and noticed that he grabs a spear and flings it at David who just narrowly escapes it. And so David, who's been rejected by his own family, then faces the rejection of effectively his adopted family. The king doesn't want him. He's got to leave home, leave his, his new wife, leave his best friend. And if you know the story well, that's a real bitter moment for David. And him and Jonathan love each other deeply. Uh, and so for the next 10, depending on who you read, 10 to 13 years, David is on the run from a mad, evil-possessed king. How many people know that sometimes when God speaks, <laughs> you think, oh, great, that's all going to be sunshine and roses. Not so much. See, you and I are born into a battle. In the spiritual realm, the words of the Lord has the ultimate authority. But whenever God speaks, the enemy is not about to sit back and let you take territory. There will always be pushback. Sometimes we see those things as, maybe I'm going in the wrong direction. Sometimes it should just confirm to us. You're rattling the right cage. So David is, is on the run. He eventually settles in this little village, a place called Keilah. Uh, and he looks after the place. A few times they're attacked, and he kind of marshals the men uh, of the village, and they're able to push back their, their enemies. And he's got a little following there. Things are going well there. But Saul hears about this. And David knows it. So David goes back to the Lord to inquire of the Lord. That's a phrase we read so often through the book of Daniel. Uh, Dave, uh, where are we? 1 Samuel. Uh, Probably true of Daniel as well, but let's stick with David for now. David inquired of the Lord. The deep thing to have a heart after God is to keep asking, God, what are you doing? So David goes to the Lord and says, Lord, will Saul come and attack me? And the Lord says, yep. Sometimes God doesn't always give you the answer you want, does he? He says, well, when Saul does come with his men... Will the people of this town protect me and hide me? And the Lord says, no. Are you tracking this? So he's been rejected by his own family. Surely David can't be king. He's now been rejected because of his success from the royal household in which he was um, adopted. 
And now he's found a home in this village. He's protected them and provided for them. And now they're about to hand him over as well. So David has got to flee from there. He flees into the wilderness. Uh, now there's a, a, a period of his life when there's a whole bunch of people who are out in the wilderness. Uh, the Bible describes them as people who are either in debt or desperate or discontented, dejected. So kind of the rejects of society. They can't hold down a job. Uh, they can't provide for their family. And so they find themselves out in the wilderness. And what's so interesting about David is that he's able to gather these men together. He's not yet been crowned king, but he's acting as a king. Which is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes when you have a spiritual anointing for something, you've got no position to do it, but God is still going to do it in you and through you because it's, it's just part of who you are. And this is David. He, he begins to lead these people. Uh, at one point, it, it reaches to 400 of these people start following David. Uh, eventually, by the time we get to this chapter, it goes up to 600 people. But they can't stay in the wilderness because of the threat uh, of Saul hunting him down and looking for him. So the only place they've got left to go is to the enemy, to the Philistines. Now, this would have cost David. David, who was so loyal to his God, so loyal to his people. He riled against, he found this courage to fight against the enemies of God's people. To go and live with the Philistines would have been a tough thing. They come to see him and come to know him as this warrior. He's got this kind of international reputation. And so they invite him into, his ar into their army. Uh, and for a couple of years, David uses that position to go and attack enemies of Israel, which is kind of genius, really. The Philistines think he's doing it for them, but he's deliberately doing these night raids against enemies of Israel. Kind of amazing that Israel were enjoying a period of freedom with no idea that someone was fighting for them. And this was David. This, this was his heart. Until the day that the Philistines planned to attack Israel. And someone in, uh, in Philistine think, thinks to themselves, well, we can't allow David to go. Because when the moment comes, he'll turn on us. And that'll win him favor back home. And then he'll go and have favor. And we'll be defeated. So David rides to talk to the Philistines. And they say, no, we don't want you to fight for us. And so David now has faced this odd series of rejections. He's faced it more, more disappointment and rejection probably in this period of his life than most of us have in a lifetime. His family, his adopted family, his kin, his people, and now his enemy don't want him. His enemy doesn't want him. You know you're having a bad day when the devil doesn't want you. So David wonders what on earth to do. And that's when we get to chapter 30. He rides back to this town that uh, the Philistines have given him to live in, a place called Ziklag. But while they've been away kind of trying to negotiate and uh, arrange to go to battle, the Amalekites have come against Ziklag and attacked it. They've carried away their women and children and burnt the place to the ground. And then, in the final act of rejection, these men, who had gone from being society's rejects to being known as David's mighty men, interestingly, four of them go on to kill giants of their own. So David is not play-acting being a king. He's pouring out his heart, his training, his life 
into these guys. These people who wouldn't have a life without him, wouldn't have a hope without him, turn on him. You see it so often, don't you? When something's not working, we go for the guy at the top. And this happens to David. And they talk about stoning him. An awful, horrible way to die. 600 men versus one. So David now is completely alone. He hasn't got a father to talk to. He hasn't got a brother. Hasn't even got a friend. The Bible tells us that here uh, in this moment, uh, David is feeling greatly distressed. In other words, in the Hebrew for distress means to be pressed, means to be crushed down. The way that it's used here in this passage can mean a couple of ways. It can mean emotionally. They want to kill me. It can mean mentally. I've got no way out of this situation. If they want to stone me, 600 men, good luck. No way mentally out of this situation at all. It can mean physically drained. Isn't it amazing when you face an emotional challenge? You find yourself getting tired and exhausted and grumpy and upset by small things because when we're, physical, when we're emotionally crushed, it has an effect on our, our whole being. We're told here David is not just distressed. He's greatly distressed. And who can blame him? So what does David do? He could have run for the hills. He could have run for his life. He's a, a guy with a lot of initiative. He's a guy with lots of creativity. He could have tried running. Doesn't do that. He could have become really indignant and cross and gathered the men together and done one of those sort of leader's speeches where you just emotionally beat down the people and tell them, you wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for me. I provided for you. I protected you. How can you turn on me at a time like this? But here's what David does. He says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. David found strength in the Lord his God. So first question as I come to this passage is, where do I find strength? When I'm pressed emotionally, spiritually, physically, where do I go for strength? David, we're told, finds strength in the Lord, his God. Now, I know we love the end of this story. I know we love to jump to the end of this chapter where it says David recovered all. It all came back. And David is so generous with what's been given. We love the end of this story, but we don't get there without this moment. David finds strength. And the truth is, some of us find strength in all kinds of places. Some good, some bad, some very ugly. When I'm hurt, when I'm damaged, when I'm bruised, the places I run, people who will validate me, things that will medicate for it, things that will help me to forget all about it. We find strength in all kinds of places. And we, then we get surprised when that strength runs out. David finds strength in the Lord, his God. I was looking at this uh, passage this week, and uh, if you're here or listening and, or watching and you've got different translations of, of scriptures, you'll have noticed 
uh, that there's another way in which this verse can be phrased. Uh, I know we're reading the nearly infallible version, the NIV, but this is actually quite a poor translation of this verse. It's the outcome of it, but it's not the activity of the verse. Uh, more literally, the, the word that's used there is this Hebrew word, which means to strengthen yourself in something. There are times when you will have to strengthen yourself. When there will be no one else to stand with you. And you will face the decision, do I run? Do I fight it in my strength? Or will I strengthen myself? first half, I'll say the last half of that word, uh, means to, to bolster something. Like if there was a wall that was kind of um, weak and you went and you put more bricks into it, you'd strengthen the wall. Or if there was a bridge and it was weak and you put more wood into it, you'd build up the bridge. That's why in the New Testament, Paul talks about encourage one another and build one another up. And in recent years, the Lord has placed, and rightly so, so much emphasis on us as a fellowship together, encouraging one another supporting, cheerleading one another. But what happens on the day when there is no one to do that? What happens in those situations when others are blind or ignorant to our hurt and our loss? And we will have to strengthen ourselves. This word in the Hebrew is uh, translated as strengthen, but it also can be translated as encourage as well. It's that old word, encourage, the last part meaning courage. When we encourage someone, we literally put courage into them. We literally speak strength into them. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've had to encourage yourself. Had to coach yourself. We learn here a lot these days, don't we, about leadership. And only a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at some very strong moral failures in leadership that highlight the fact that the hardest person to lead is yourself. It's amazing, isn't it, how full we are of great advice for other people to do so poorly when it comes to guiding ourselves. We all love those activities where we go and write a letter to our younger self. Well, our younger self is never going to read that letter. What about writing a letter to your future self? Or for some of us, to our present self? David encouraged himself. But notice that he didn't encourage himself in himself. There's a way of encouraging which can be quite discouraging, actually. When you're facing a, a situation and you don't know if you can handle it, and somebody comes to you and, well-meaning, they're trying to encourage you, but they say things like, you can do this. You've got this. And you know you can't. You know you won't. Because the reason why the hardest person to lead is yourself is because you know yourself better than anyone else. You spend more time with you than anyone. The person you listen to most is you. Whether you realize that or not. So how are we speaking to ourselves? How are we encouraging ourselves? If it's only ever, I can do this, you're going to find that runs out quite quickly. 
If I've got to encourage myself with myself, I won't get very far. In fact, if I think about myself too much, I get quite discouraged rather than encouraged. David doesn't encourage himself in himself. He encourages himself in the Lord. I love that passage when, when Paul is writing at one point and he describes his ministry and then he says, but after I have preached to others, I then preach to myself so that I will not be found unworthy of the prize to which others are called. How often have we done that? Preached to ourselves. Encouraged ourselves, not in who we are or what we can do, but in the Lord. See, it often happens, doesn't it, when we, we gather for worship, we're reminded of who God is. The everlasting the one who is seated on the throne and we're lifted. That there's this principle, I don't pretend to fully understand it, but if in doubt, worship. Because as we lift God up, something of who we are is lifted in that. We don't do it for that, we do it because he's worthy. But in doing that, we're lifted. We're encouraged in the Lord. The devil does not want you to come to church. He doesn't want you to come and be part of the worship because he's terrified of an encouraged people. He's terrified of people who believe what they sing, who believe this God that they pray to. He will do everything he can to keep you from that. But when you're not here, and when times are hard, when people abandon you, and they will because the Lord has not surrounded us just with angels, but with human beings. And so there will be disappointment. There will be. Don't encourage yourself in others. Encourage yourself in the Lord. And I wonder today if the Lord just wants to whisper to someone. I have strength for you. And you've run so many places looking for strength. I've got encouragement for you. You've run so many places looking for encouragement. I've got comfort for you. And you've run so many places because there's an instinct, isn't there? There's a, a way in which we will lead ourselves. But if you will lead yourself to me, God says, there is a strength that is sufficient. There's a grace that will not fail you. There's a love that you can't exhaust. Run to him. Run to him. We see it, don't we, in the ministry of, of Jesus. Uh, on the last week of his life, the uh, evening of his arrest, he's meeting with his disciples and he's breaking bread and pouring out wine and he's trying to make it as clear as he can. My body will be broken for you. My blood will be poured out for you. He's trying to make it as, as clear as he can. But before he goes to the cross, he wants to go uh, and he wants to pray. He asks the disciples, will you pray with me? Isn't that an incredible thought that Jesus wants the disciples to pray with him? You would have thought if Jesus was praying, well, that's, that would be enough. But he says, will you watch with me and will you pray? Somehow our prayers contribute in the mystery of prayer to the will of God and the work of God. Will you stand and watch with me and pray? And there in the garden, as one by one those disciples fall asleep, Jesus has to encourage himself. In the Lord his God. Three times we're told he kneels alone. 
and praise Father. Reminds himself who God is. Abba. Press on every side. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Crushed. Not my will, Father. Not what I want. The Jesus who taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, goes there himself. And the silence from heaven gives him his reply, there's no other way. It is not possible. As Jesus rises strengthened from having wrestled that out with his father. Strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Just in this moment, let's just seek to do some of that. Encourage yourself today, strengthen yourself in who God is, in the promise he's spoken over your life, in your purpose, in your place, in the passion that he has for you. We see it time and time again, don't we, in the Psalms, the psalmist addressing themselves. Why are you downcast? Place your hope in God. It's really interesting that the battle that David wanted to be part of, but couldn't, was the battle in which Saul was killed. There may well be a reason for the pain, a purpose. And so, Lord, we seek today to rest in the strength that you have for us. And in those situations, Lord God, where we go chasing other things and leaning into other places, would you help us to speak, to address ourselves, to call ourselves back to who you are and what you've done? Lord, we confess that often we, we do go meddling. So, Lord, I pray that you would meet us, not just in this moment, but in those moments. And would you lavish upon us today, God, your power, your purpose, your peace. We thank you, Lord, that it is in weakness. We find that your strength is perfect.
and that at our lowest you find that you come reaching for us. 